Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. If a child is dysregulated and you put them on the naughty step, you're not helping them learn to regulate because you're disconnecting them from you. In fact, what you're doing is you're telling your child that their big emotions are not okay with you. You are listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 184. Good job, honey. Thank you. Today, we're talking about how to handle tantrums with Dr. Laura Markham. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mom, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Membership, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. I am so glad you are here. One big special welcome if you are new to the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode because we are talking to none other than Dr. Laura Markham, who's a great inspiration to me and so many others. She's the founder of AHA Parenting and the author of Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids and Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings. She makes frequent TV and radio appearances and has been interviewed for thousands of articles and publications like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Real Simple, Red Book, Parents, and more. She has been an inspiration to so many in this peaceful parenting world. So I'm so excited to kind of give us 
have her give you a little bit of a peaceful parenting 101 here. And we're going to talk specifically about tantrums. You know, you have a child, they're starting to defy you and to say no. So what do you do? And the way we respond in these um, early days really can create a pattern for later that can either get more and more difficult or easier and easier over time. So I'm so excited for you to hear the fundamentals of peaceful parenting in this in three basic steps. So I want you to listen for a few takeaways that I had talking to her. So thinking about the number one question you need to ask yourself before you discipline and the research that explains why, why your child's big emotions are so hard to handle. And then also we're going to have a conversation towards the end. So stay through all the way to the end because we're going to talk about how to get your partner on board with your parenting style. Really important and vital stuff here. So I'm so excited for this. Before we dive in, you should know that the Mindful Parenting membership is coming this fall if you're listening in real time and it is already there if you're listening in the future. But we are going to be kicking off with the Mindful Parenting free training week and it is a week of live training with me and I am so excited for it because we are going to be talking about why your kids don't listen to you. You're going to learn about some like instincts, what we think of as instincts that lead us astray. And you're going to hear about the orange theory of parenting, all kinds of great stuff. And I'll be, it'll be back and forth. I'll be connecting with you live every single day from September 16th through 19th. So I hope you will join us at Mindful Parenting Course dot com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And you can sign up at you can find it at mindfulmamamentor.com. But this is such a powerful free training. You can join hundreds, maybe thousands of other parents from around the world can make a huge difference. And then we are going to be launching opening for a brief week, you can become a founding member of the mindful parenting membership. I'm so excited for this because not only do I get to teach you the essential fundamentals of how to get to respond differently, how to create different choices, how to deal with your own biological stress response so that you can really getting into the nuts and bolts, scripts on what to say to help to so that your child will respond to you and cooperate with you from the inside out, all that stuff. How not only how to do all those things, but also because it's a membership, we're going to help you implement it over time, bit by bit, because new challenges continually come. I promise you that as a parent of a 12-year-old and 9-year-old, who you heard that 9-year-old in the intro, those new challenges continually come. So that Mindful Parenting membership is going to be open for a brief week for you to join as a founding member with the founding member price. So be alert for that. And the best way to be in the loop is to join us for that free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And I can't wait to see you there. All right. All right. Enough. Enough with the intro. You're dying to get to Dr. Laura. Her audio is not amazing in this, but stick with it because what she says is so amazing. 
I love what she says about partners and kids, and it's just so deep. So join me at the table as I talk to Dr. Laura Markham. Dr. Laura Markham, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad you're here. And we've talked before, but we had a, a, an audio problem. So I'm so glad to have you on again. I love your work and I love your books and, the, and what you put out in the world. And I thought today it would be so helpful to think about think about kind of like peaceful parenting 101. And I, I love the I, thinking about like, you know, if you imagine I'm, I'm the parent of a recently turned two-year-old and there's all this conflicting advice out there, there's so much pressure to have a well-behaved child. So what should I do when my child starts to refuse to do things or misbehaves? It's like the big like, oh my gosh, here it is, here it comes. What do I do now when I'm this parent? Well, first of all, I, you, you said there's pressure. I mean, there's so many different parts of what you've asked that we want to unpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, pressure from outside. What is your commitment when you decide you're going to raise a child? It's a sacred commitment, and the commitment is to the ch- child. It's to, to facilitate the child's blossoming so that the child is able to be healthy, happy, able to contribute positively to the world, right? That's our commitment. Our commitment is not that our two-year-old will always exhibit uh, behavior that the adults around the two-year-old approve of or like, because first of all, the two-year-old is still basically a baby. And secondly, even if they were 12, they're still a child. Their brain is still maturing. They're still learning. And how many adults do we know who always exhibit behavior that everyone around them always approves of? I don't think very many. Mm-hmm. So certainly as they get older, they will be, they will understand social norms better. They will understand uh, how to take more responsibility for their actions and how their actions affect others. They will become more considerate. But I think putting the, just the idea that we approach our two-year-old from the perspective of what random adults in the supermarket think is such a betrayal of our actual commitment. Our actual commitment is to provide the conditions for our child to grow and thrive, and that's emotionally as well as physically. And we know what kids need to develop emotionally. We know. There's a lot of research on it. So John Gottman, who's the foremost couples researcher in the United States, also because he studied couples for so long, saw them, you know, they were having babies. They brought their babies into the lab. He saw them interact with their children. He did a lot of research on it. And some time ago now, he published some of that research in a book about raising an emotionally intelligent child. And one of his findings that's very striking is that most Americans, and he's only studying Americans, so he's not overclaiming here, but It probably applies, you know, to many people in the world. Most of us are actually uncomfortable with our children's emotions. And we're uncomfortable because we are, um, we don't want our children to be in pain or to hurt or to be sad. We're uncomfortable because other people are judging us, or, or at least we think they're judging us in that supermarket or anywhere. We're uncomfortable because we, we, 
didn't ever learn to be comfortable with our own emotions, right? And so we were afraid that having big emotions is a sign there's something wrong with our child, or we're we are uncomfortable with our child's emotions because we learned as children that that that's manipulation. That's what we were told when we had big emotions. Don't you try to manipulate me, right? So we respond by trying to shut down the emotions, trying to distract the child. Oh, don't worry, we'll get you another one. We respond by shaming and blaming. Oh, a little scratch like that doesn't hurt or that wouldn't upset your brother. He would take that in stride. Why are you getting so bent out of shape about that? Right? So there's a lot of ways we respond to emotions that are not healthy, actually, for our child. Because the research that John Gottman uh, did and that many other people have replicated is that when we respond to emotions with empathy and understanding, even while we change the child's behavior, we may read, you know, maybe they're not allowed to sweep everything off the supermarket shelf, right? And throw the <laughs> eggs on the floor or whatever. <laughs> of course they are. We do need to guide their behavior. But even as we guide their behavior, we accept the emotions. We understand the emotions. We understand the child's point of view. They're hungry. They're tired. They feel disconnected from us. They're angry about something. They desperately want something because they think it'll make them feel better, even though we have to say no to that something, which might be a cookie, for instance. So when we back up the camera and we take a larger view of what our child actually needs in that moment in order to have the conditions to thrive, the conditions are about acceptance and understanding and certainly guiding the behavior. But they're not about making the child look good. The message we want to impart to the child is not, you have to look good at all costs. What kind of a message would that be? Right, the mess. You know, look at your behavior. The message is, I understand you're having a hard time right now. I can't allow you to do X, Y, Z, but I totally get why you're upset. Come with me. We're gonna we're gonna settle down. We're gonna. I've got your back. We're gonna come back and tackle this together. You don't always get what you want, but you can get something better. What you really need, which is a mom or a dad who understands. And supports you, helps you, no matter what. That's mm. what we want to give up. Are you frustrated with parenting? Do you want to practice conscious, compassionate parenting, but you don't know how? It's not easy, and there's no roadmap for this. Until now. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I know how frustrating it is because I've been there. I struggled as a young mom, and when I found myself yelling and triggered by my child, I knew there had to be a better way, and there is. Mindful parenting is different from other parenting trainings. They don't tell you that all of that good advice is as good as useless when our internal stress response is triggered. Mindful parenting teaches you research-based tools and practices to reduce your stress response so that you can respond rather than react. And it teaches you exactly what to say so that you can create willing cooperation from your child. You can learn more and enroll at mindfulparentingcourse.com. And you can join us for a free live training coming up soon where you'll learn why your kids don't listen to you, how your brain undermines your parenting, and how to create cooperative kids without losing your temper. Sign up now at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. I'll see you there. 
We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. Mm, I love that. So basically, new parents step back, you know, come step back and look at what is, what is, take a step at the big picture, right? We're kind of so in the weeds. We're so in, I just need to get these shoes on to get out the door that it's it's hard to step back and take a moment and to look at the big picture so maybe dear listener we can do that now like what what is our commitment to our child that's really really beautiful but then to play devil's advocate what about that that parent who you know needs to get these darn shoes on because they need to get to work because their livelihood depends on it so there's really literally you know threat to the livelihood when when the child is refusing uh, a behavior like that so what what might you say to a parent in that situation yes i would say that there are always tools that you can use within the general context we've just outlined 
and there's preventive maintenance you can do so that the child is more likely to cooperate more of the time. And even in that moment, there are there's a whole range of interventions. In that moment, you could, if you, you're trying to, first of all, you're trying to get to work, you're trying to get out the door, the kid refuses to put on their shoes. You stop, you take a deep breath because you know that your child's limbic system, their emotional system is taking its cues from you. If you, you act like it's an emergency, the child will very quickly escalate in their panic, right? If they're digging in their heels, if they're being defiant with you at this moment, that's fight, flight, or freeze. They're already in a panic. And if you go into a panic too, you know, you've just jumped off the cliff with them, right? So your job at that moment is to take a deep breath and calm down because then your child's limbic system is taking its cues from you and it resonates with you much, much of the time. As you take a deep breath and you slow down, what's the our impulse when our child gets um, revved up and difficult is that we get revved up too in trying to control them. You cannot control another person. The tool at that moment when your child is upset, whether it's in the morning before school or in the grocery store, is to slow down. Don't speed up, slow down. You slow down, you bring yourself fully present. Children follow presence, just like adults do, more so. Children follow presence, you bring yourself fully present. You take that deep breath, you look at your child, and you connect. So the very, so peaceful parenting, what I teach, it's only got three parts. First, you self-regulate. And that's, you, you, it's a lifetime work, but it is, it is the bottom line of everything we do in life. We are always monitoring our own well-being and bringing ourselves into more presence. So that's self-regulation. The second thing we do is connect. You can't control your child. All of your influence comes from the connection. So you're connecting. And we can look at what that looks like with this toddler that morning. Mm-hmm. But the third thing you do is you coach the child as opposed to trying to control them. You're not using rewards and punishment. You're not threatening them, which is the, the natural thing that comes out of control when we're trying to control their behavior. You put your shoes on right now, or you won't get to watch your show later, or you won't get to, we won't, you know, when. Whatever you come up with some threat that you're that you're you're hissing at your child to behave or you know raising your voice. So those are the three parts of peaceful parenting: self-regulate, connect, coach. And the coaching is to help them with their emotions. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, you've taken a breath, you've shifted yourself to be as present as you can, even though you're worried about getting to your meeting and your boss at that moment, and you connect with the child. You say, You don't want these shoes on. That's how we connect. The first thing you do is you state what the other person is trying to tell you. You don't want these shoes on, huh? Yeah. Your child looks at you, right? Like that, I see you, I hear you moment, right? Like I I see what's going on with you. Yes. And at that moment, you suddenly, the door opens to connection that you've created. Suddenly you have an opportunity to influence your child. So you have to to assess at that moment. It's an art form. It's not a, not a science. What's going on with your child? Maybe, maybe they don't want to go out the door and get dropped off at daycare so you can go to work. They don't, they, you had a lovely morning and they don't want to separate. Maybe you've had a very hard morning and you've raised your voice all morning and they're just mad at you and defiant, right? And they're going to resist you at every turn. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it's because they were allowed 
once they're dressed to watch a screen and they're trying to take them, you're trying to take them away from the screen. And the last thing they want to do is because humans are addicted to screens because that's the nature of screens and humans, right? They don't want to leave that screen. Maybe they're just feeling like you're rushing them and they weren't, you know, because you're in a hurry for your meeting and you were running a little late. And so they're, they're anxious about that. Maybe your partner's out of town and you've been harried and your child is feeling that. And so they're already feeling a little out of sorts. Could be any number of things. Maybe they're too. And every, as the studies show, every, you know, third word out of their mouth is no, right? Whatever it is. <laughs> so at that moment, when you say, you really don't want to put these shoes on her, your child looks at you. And then you see, they soften just slightly because you're just soft. And then you see whether you have an opening. Now, if you generally have a good relationship with your child and you can sort of reclaim that connection through humor, that's all, almost always the best way in. So you might have the shoe in your hand as you say that, and then you might make a squeaky voice as you pull the shoe up and the shoe is dancing, and you're, you're dancing in the shoe in the air saying, I want to go on, and let's say your child's name is Jacob, and you and where where do you and you say to the shoe where do you go on Jacob and the shoe says his ear I go on Jacob's ear and you pretend you're putting the shoe on Jacob's ear and Jacob says no 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 you go on my foot and the next thing you know the shoes are on the feet and that's that and you're done and you grab your your briefcase or your backpack and you grab your kid and you're out the door you know mm-hmm. um, and you're done and it's and you make it fun the whole way to the car where the shoes are still talking and you say you know or to the subway wherever you're going you know um, which way do we go now shoes. Can you show Jacob's feet where to go? Do we, and do the shoes climb up or does Jacob fly? You know, and you just do the whole, the shoes are talking the whole way. And Jacob's just had a lovely start to his day because children love to play. It is their work. It is the way they approach the world. And he probably can't resist an invitation to play, actually, as long as he's not too out of sorts. Now, that doesn't always work. Let's say you try it and Jacob says, no, and he kicks his shoe across the room. At that point, if it were me, even if it were the middle of winter in Maine, I would pick up my sh- the shoes, put them in the backpack for the child that you're bringing to the daycare or whatever, and put it on my back and say, you are having such a hard morning. It's not going the way you want it. And you really don't want those shoes. As I put them in the backpack, I'd say, let's put those shoes away so you don't have to put them on now. When will you wear the shoes? What will you decide? As you pick your child up, you're giving them total control of the shoes, but not control of your morning and getting to work on time. You're picking them up. You're, you're saying, do you want to put this shoe in the backpack? Or do you think we should put it, you know, I don't know where, um, you know, in my purse. You don't want to really want to put it in your purse because you could forget to, bring, you know, whatever. You, you, want it, you want to get it where you want it. But the point is you're giving your child some control. Do you want to put the shoe in the backpack? Um, and, or do you want to carry them? I would probably not let him carry them to the car. He could throw them across the yard, you know? So, but you're giving them control of something and you're, you're moving to the car at the same time. Your child is probably not going to resist the car seat because something amazing just happened. You're giving the child control of the shoes. You're not fighting with them. Wow. Says the child, mommy's listening to me. She hears, I don't want the shoes. She's she, and, and I, I said, the child doesn't have to get everything they want. They do have to have a parent who understands. And sometimes that does mean that you're saying to your child, you really don't want these on. You want to choose when to put your shoes on. You can put them on now or you can put them on when we get to daycare. What do you think? And the child's like, daycare, because 
no child in the right mind wants to put their shoes on right now. And so you're, you're buckling him in and saying, won't miss Cynthia, his daycare teacher, um, think it's great when you come in and show her how you can put your shoes on yourself. She's never seen you put them on, or maybe she sees it every day at nap time, who knows, but whatever. You say something about how Miss Cynthia is going to be very excited to watch him put on his shoes. And you're buckling him in, and you're driving the car, and you're singing his favorite song with him. And you get out of the car, and you say, do you want Miss Cynthia to see, or do you want to put them on now before you go in, so you can run with the other kids right away? You know, whatever it is, you're giving him a choice. Now, does it really matter that he went out in his socks into a cold car? He's not going to get frostbite, right? You've got heat in your car. Parents just assume that the child has to obey them or something terrible is going to happen. In fact, obedience is not what you want. You want a child who does the right thing based on their own compass. And often you do need a child to do what you say at the moment you say it. You need a child if they're on their little scooter going down a city sidewalk, which, you know, I live in New York City, so I see this all the time. You need that child to stop at the end of the block. No questions asked. There's, you know, a taxi cab hurtling down the street. But those, if you um, are judicious about what's important and what's not, and you give them choices about the things that don't actually matter, like getting those shoes on before they get in the car, then your child is much more likely to say, yeah, this is a serious thing. Mom and dad mean it when they say I stop at the end of the street. If I don't, I have to get off the scooter. I can't ride the scooter for the rest of the day. You know, And there's nothing punitive about it. It's just, it was too hard for you to stop. It's just too dangerous. Kids can't ride scooters. And, and you know, the, I see three-year-olds on scooters. Also, so, you know, um, but, but you can't ride a scooter until you can, you can handle it, which means you always stop at the end of the street. And then you crouch down with them and you say, see these cars going by? They wouldn't even see you. They're too high up. You cannot go in the street without me, no matter what. So if you can stop your scooter at the end of the block that without, without me telling you, then you can ride a scooter. Otherwise, you can't. We'll try again tomorrow. You know. So again, nothing punitive. It's just these. this is the structure. It's sort of like it's bedtime now or now we're leaving for work. They don't get choices about those things. But there's nothing wrong with giving them a choice about when to put those shoes on. You're, you're highlighting something that oh, I wish I had learned better when my kids were younger. I remember feeling very worried about the jacket in winter. And I've seen this with, you know, at the bus stop and things like that, like fights about the jacket at the bus stop. And I, I remember feeling, you know, like, oh, I need to get this jacket on my child, you know, and, and in my brain kind of subconsciously, it was always like, otherwise I'm like not a very good parent if I can't even get a jacket on my child, right? But if I could go back in time, I would tell my younger self that it doesn't matter that much that I could just bring the jacket with me and hold it under my arms. Like that, that lesson didn't need to be learned in that specific way, in that specific moment, you know, like a court, you know, this was the, the moment in my brain, you know, it, it was such a great example of natural consequences. Like say that toddler goes out the door in Maine in the winter with no shoes and says, yikes, you know, mommy, I need my shoes. There's ice on the ground, you know? I mean, that's such a great example of, of letting go of some control, letting your child have some autonomy and, you know, forget what the neighbors think. <laughs> it, that doesn't matter that much. That doesn't matter that much. You explained that so, so beautifully, Laura. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Go ahead. 
I have a question for you. So, you know, when you say that lesson doesn't have to be learned in that way at that moment, what even is the lesson we're trying to teach? I think it's more about our own self-image. I'm a good mom. Therefore, I, of course, can get the jacket and shoes on my toddler, right? But that's, that's not a lesson for our child. That's a question to ask ourselves is, well, what does it actually mean to be the best mom I can be at that moment? It does not mean getting into a fight with our child, actually. That's not being a great mom, right? So, so, and it certainly doesn't mean worrying about what the neighbors think or the people at the bus stop, right? So I do think that's the question is like, what is the lesson at that morning when we're trying to get the kid out of the house and go to the bus stop? If the lesson is about the inner compass, which it, in fact, we want our children to have a strong inner compass that tells them how they, that guides their actions, that guides them in their, in choosing their actions. And it needs to come from their sense at a visceral level, at a body level of what is right and what they need and how to keep their bodies safe, right? Now, they don't always know. They don't know that not brushing their teeth is going to give them a cavity. And, you know, that's fine. Those are the things we learn that are more intellectual. But they can tell if they're cold. And if you turn it into a power struggle, they won't ask for that jacket or the shoe. But if you're just matter of fact about it, like, okay, when you're ready, you'll put them on. Then you're right. They'll be saying, mommy, I need my shoes. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, there's so much you know, we don't want to admit it there, but there's so much ego there, right? There's just so much about the sense of self and self-identity, who we are as a person and, and what is, what does this mean? And, and I think uh, there also, it probably comes from a lot of fear, right? Like fear that, fear that we're not doing a good job, right? Fear that we're, you know, we're not enough or not doing a good job. So therefore, like fear drives us to want to like control things, right? So therefore, we want to control our kids. This is this idea. And you said a number of times, you can't control your kids. We can control, you know, ourselves. We can control the situation. We can, um, and, you know, there can be, we can control the, the environment, but we, we can't control our kids. And that's a really hard lesson to learn, that we can't control our kids, Right. I think when before people have children, they have this fantasy of what it's going to be like and how they're going to have a perfectly behaved kid because they're going to be that parent who somehow does that. And in fact, they, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want to control. If you could control your child, you would have broken their will and you would be raising someone who would need you next to them for the rest of their lives in order to make choices. That's not what you want. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you say, so you talk about punishments, shaming and blaming that these are not, let's just dive in a little bit more to that. Why aren't, why is punishment not something that you recommend? Even timeouts, right? That is true. So the reason I don't recommend it is the research. And the research is pretty clear that when children are punished for something, they be become worse behaved. And I, I think we can easily understand, I mean, it, that may seem contradictory, or not contradictory, it may seem shocking uh, until you think about yourself as a human. So you're an adult, you're a human. Let's say you go to work and your boss says to you, you didn't handle this correctly with this client. So we're punishing you. We're going to, you know, uh, dock your pay. <laughs> you would be like, what? 
we're going to give you an electric shock. Oh my God, you know, <laughs> that would be barbaric, right? You work in a place where, where you, you receive a physical punishment, but let's say you receive some or other punishment, or even let's say an emotional punishment. You're shamed in, in front of everyone else at the staff meeting. Do those things make, or, or let's say your boss raises their voice and yells at you, either in front of people or not in front of people, by your, by, in their office alone with you. Do any of those things make you want to do a better job? You know, let's say you, it was something that you could have done a better job with. The report was turned in a day late, whatever it was. Um, does it make you want to get that next report in on time? Well, maybe because you don't want to suffer the consequence. Does it, does it make you do a better job with the next report? Does it make you feel good about yourself in that workplace? Want to be your best self? No, you're looking for another job to get out of there as soon as you can. Well, your mm. child can't get another job and get out of there. You know, they're, they're home with you. They can't, they can't go to another family, but it's not making them want to be a better kid to get yelled at or to be shamed or humiliated or to be physically punished, you know, spanked, slapped, or even to have you purposely hurt their, hurt them emotionally by taking away something that is important to them, for instance, a privilege or, um, you know, uh, Confining them, a timeout is a, is it basically isolation. You cut them off from contact with you. That that is the description of timeout. That's what it was created to be. To it's called timeout for reinfor- from reinforcement, and it was developed as a way for parents to not hit their children. And uh, because parents didn't know how to emotion coach and handle the kids' emotions, so they would end up hurting the child physically. And the pediatricians in the country all got together and said, okay, we're going to do something different. We're going to stop people from hitting their kids, which often escalates because it does escalate. When you hit a child, you have to then up the ante and hit them more next. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to keep increasing the amount you have. So the pediatrician said, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to have the, the child and the parent separate so the parent can calm down and the child can calm down. And that seems on the face of it like a great thing. And if you need to calm down so you don't smack your child, Great. Come move away. Go take a timeout yourself. That's a great use of timeout. But timeout for your child when you put them on the naughty step means that your child is being isolated from your um, connect from connection with you. And kids need young children, and you're not doing timeouts with a 12-year-old, so it's young children, need to be in connection with you to self-regulate. So if you have a child who's dysregulated and you put them on the naughty step, you're not helping them learn to regulate because you're disconnecting them from you. In fact, what you're doing is you're telling your child that their big emotions are not okay with you and are shameful. And until they can swallow those emotions and stuff them, you will not relate to them. Now, parents might say, no, no, I'm just asking him to regulate the emotions and talk to me in a reasonable tone of voice. And then he can get off the naughty suit. But what does that really mean? Because those big emotions that child is having, he's angry. He's angry at something. Um, an example from one of my clients that I often use when I speak is the child who knocked down the tower his brother was building because his brother took his favorite block. And he tried everything he could think of to get the block back, trading with the brother or whatever, and the little brother wouldn't give him the block back. And he knocked down, the, he pushed the blocks down onto the other kid. And the other kid, of course, is crying. The two-year-old is sobbing because the blocks have just come down in his face. And he's he's hurt and he's sobbing. And the mother has a choice at this moment, or the father, 
they can go over and they can do what most parents would do, which is scream at the kid who knocked the blocks down and drag him to the naughty step. And what do you think that kid is thinking on the naughty step? Oh, I want to be a bad big brother. Next time I'm going to handle my feelings more, um, respo- more responsibly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> thinking it's all my brother's fault. It's always my brother's fault. My parents always take his side. I hate him. I hate them. No one here understands me. This is the beginning of that chip on the shoulder. And if you have older children and you're listening to this, you may recognize what I'm talking about, where sometimes there's a chip on the shoulder from the older child toward the younger one, where no matter what, they're just angry at the younger child. And it comes from handling things in that kind of a way, where we take the older, you know, of course you have to protect your younger child and and all your children. But when we handle things, so we're automatically blaming even a child who did the wrong thing, like this kid clearly did the wrong thing, knocked the blocks down on his brother. Even when that's the case, when we step in and we're blaming and shaming and punishing, we're creating more sibling rivalry and that creates that chip on the shoulder. Now imagine, because this is, I'm answering your question about timeouts. Imagine that instead of that, you just took care of the kid who's hurt, who's wailing the two-year-old. You ignore the other kid because you can't really deal with him in a loving way at the moment. You just ignore him. You're picking up your toddler out of the mess of the blocks and you're saying, oh, ouch, it looks like you got hurt. It must have scared you when those blocks came down. Yes, I see. He's pointing to his knee and it hurt your knee. There were blocks on your knee and they hurt. Ouch, let me kiss that. Let's go get an ice pack for you. And you're you're being, you're you're shifting yourself out of avenging mom, mom, mommy to, you know, nurturing mommy, which is good. Um, because then once you get your toddler set up to play with his trainer, his truck or whatever, and he's across the room, you can go back to the kid who did the hurting and you, you sit down next to you and you say, wow, that was hard, huh? And he looks at you suspiciously. <laughs> you're connected. That's the first thing. And you're saying, your brother was crying. Those blocks that scared him, huh? You must have been pretty upset to knock the tower down. Now, if he trusts you, he might already begin to tell you why he was upset. Of course I was upset. He took my favorite block. He wouldn't give it back. I tried everything. Most of the time, if you're listening to this, you haven't tried this before. So the first time you try it, your kid's going to be totally suspicious of you. Why are you not dragging me to the naughty step? Why are you not screaming at me, right? So they're not going to just open up. You're going to have to really go overboard with your empathy. You must have been so upset. So it seems like you really wanted something and something you didn't know what to do. Is that what happened? And then the blocks came down. Is that because you you knocked the tower down because you were so upset? Notice my tone of voice is completely not judgmental. I'm trying to understand. And at some point, your child is going to start to tear up a little bit. And he's going to tell you all the terrible things that caused him to do this egregious thing. And you're going to acknowledge it. Yes, I hear you. Now, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, yes, but he has to know he can't knock the blocks down on his brother. Of course. You think he doesn't know that? But he didn't choose to do the right thing. So we need to speak to the part of him that didn't choose it. That's the part we want to bring along. He knows the rule. We're going to go back to the rule. Don't worry. But we're starting from where he is. Because that's the only way to get it where we want him to be. And what happens after he has told you all this 
the, the ways his brother was so terrible and this is the only choice he had. And at that point, it's after you said, oh my goodness, no wonder you were so upset. And then you tried that and it didn't work and then he wouldn't trade with you. No wonder you were so upset. I know that's your special block, isn't it? Yeah. And you didn't know what to do except to knock his tower down. Yeah. And then what happened? And he looks at me and he says, the tower fell down. Like, you know, I knocked it down. And you say, yeah. And then what happened? He was crying. You think it was funny to be pretty? Yeah. No, you're not shaming. You're not. Can you repeat yourself, Laura? I didn't hear that last part. <laughs> Your, your voice is so softening as you're talking to your child, right? Oh, yeah, your voice is softening. <laughs> you think it hurt him? You know, you're saying, and he's like, yeah. You're not shaming him. You're not blaming him. You're just, you're just describing what happened. You were so mad. You were so upset. You knocked the tower down, and it all fell down. It was a loud crash. I know you weren't trying to hurt him. You were just trying to get your block back, Right. And then he was crying and crying, right? He must have felt terrible. I know you love your brother, and often you two have so much fun together. And when he was crying, you must have been upset. But you didn't know what else to do, is that right? He's like, yeah, that's right. Mom gets it. And by now he's in your lap, and you're holding him, and you're hugging him, and you're saying, sweetheart, it it hurt your brother. No matter what, you cannot hurt him. You can't hurt other people. What else could you do next time? And by now he's willing to brainstorm with you. Yeah, I guess I could have called you, you know, or I could have mm-hmm. traded with him or whatever else he could try. And then you say, and the, the two-year-old would not have had the um, ability to sit through this. This is more like a, a four-year-old who can do this. But parents mm-hmm. will often say to me, my child won't sit through that kind of conversation. No, of course they won't if they think it's a lecture. Mm-hmm. But it isn't the way you're doing it. You're understanding Every child is hungry for understanding, every human. When you're telling a friend all your problems and all the details of it, you're not in a hurry for that conversation to end. You may feel like, oh my God, I have to get the conversation back to her. We're dwelling on me too much. But your four-year-old is not doing that. They're like, yes, she understands. They are not having a hard time sitting through this conversation. They feel understood. And at that point, when you say, what else could you do? It's pretty short. And then you're saying, you know, your brother loves you so much and he looks up to you because you're the big brother and it hurt his feelings and his body and it scared him when those blocks came down. I wonder what you could do to make things better with him, to help him feel better. What could you do? And that's the repair part of the equation. And this is what ends, you know, wouldn't it be an amazing world if every child learned when they were very young that they could repair the things they do wrong. And not only that, but that repair takes work. And they don't want things to go wrong. They'd rather upfront not do those things. Instead, what we're teaching our children with timeouts and consequences and all kinds of punishment is when you do something wrong, you will parents parent your parents will intentionally hurt you either physically or emotionally. That's what it is. So of course you're trying not to have your parents find out about the things that are wrong. But you're not, you're not seeing the cost to your brother of what you did wrong, right? You're just trying to save your own skin. So when mom's out of the room, you'll pinch mm-hmm. your brother because you're mad at him, right? 
And mom comes back in the room and she's like, what happened? Oh, I don't know. Why is the baby's crying? You know, I remember watching my nephew when his mom was out of the room and he didn't know I could see him pinching his brother. And then his mom came running back in the room. His brother was maybe, you know, nine months old at the time. And he's like, I don't know why I started crying, mommy. Right? You know? <laughs> but then, when, the, when the child is trying to avoid punishment, as opposed to when the child is trying to redeem themselves, we all want redemption for the things that we do wrong. And children can learn very early on how to make those repairs and also that they don't want to do those things wrong. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Yeah. That in itself, that whole experience in itself doesn't feel very good, you know, but I love this, this approach of coaching rather than controlling, because this is really what we need to do, right? We need to be coaching our kids to be able to do the, all of this themselves. Have you seen with kids who, with parents who have raised their children this way, kids who are older? Now, my assumption is that over time, Things get easier if you have a child who has learned how to self-regulate, who has who has an intrinsic motivation to, you know, behave well in this in the family and take care of people in the family and resolve conflicts rather than kind of a reward and punishment. Have you seen if that becomes easier over time? It totally becomes easier over time. So my children, who are now 27 and 23 never had a timeout. And they never, I'm not saying that they didn't do things when they were little that other people might've given them a timeout for, but I'm saying that because they didn't, because they had the kind of interventions that I'm describing, they made better and better choices 
as they got older, right? I'm thinking of one time when my daughter, um, it was, um, it was the, it was several weeks after the World Trade Center came down and she was at a friend's house and her, this is her best friend and the mother brought her home and was, the mother was clearly livid and she dropped my daughter off and she said, Alice, my daughter, hit her daughter, or used her daughter's name. And I said, really? Which I never have heard what was going on. And she said, yes, she hit her. I, I don't remember what she said, but she was clearly very angry, as you would be if your child was hit. And, mm-hmm. when, when, and so I brought Alice in the house, and the mother mother was gone. And I said, Alice, what happened? And she said, her friend was acting so weird. She wasn't acting like herself. It really... And, it really scared me. And I realized their house that, that, that one of the parents' friends um, was a firefighter who lost his life. And their house had been full of people. And that the daughter was traumatized by this experience. Of, of Many of us in New York were traumatized at the time. But that um, this daughter was close to what was going on. She knew the daughter of that family. The father had died. She was traumatized. She was scared. And she, she somehow, in her playtime with my daughter, had been unable to, to cope or function or whatever. And my daughter had been very scared by the way she was acting and hadn't known what to do and had actually hit her, trying to get responsive, trying to get her to be responsive. Um, now, was that the right thing for my daughter to do? No. But she was six years old. She didn't know what to do. And she might have even been five at the time. I'm trying to remember exactly. And... She was scared and upset, and there was no adult there to go to. Um, and so she did something that was irresponsible. So do you think that giving her a timeout would have... I mean, parents are scared when their children hit, right? It's, it's a mm-hmm. scary thing. So do I think punishing her at that moment would have helped her with her fear? Punishing makes kids more afraid, right? Instead, she was able to articulate what was going on. And... I think that when kids have that kind of parenting, they become more emotionally intelligent. They're able to understand what's going on with their emotions more readily, and they don't need to act on those emotions. And I would say that, um, you know, my son once said, my son actually never hit anyone. And I remember asking them when they were, I, I remember this only because I have it in a blog post that I wrote at the time. He was 16 and she was 12, I believe. Uh, you know, he, she may have been 14 and he was 18, but at any rate, they were, they were by then much older. And I, I asked them how they had learned to behave when they had never been punched. And he, I said, they were totally puzzled. And I said, well, you know, like, how'd you learn not to hit people? And she said, well, mom, you can't go around hitting people in our society. You know, you get locked up in jail. Everyone learns not to hit people. The question isn't, do you learn not to hit people? It's, do you learn not to hit them because you're afraid you'll get in trouble? Or do you learn not to hit them because it hurts the other person? Which is, in fact, the basic question of moral development. And it's, in fact, the reason why punishment sabotages moral development. If kids who are punished have their moral development is actually behind. It's not as advanced for the same age kids who are not punished for exactly that reason. Moral development is about caring about the impact of your actions. And if you're punished, you don't care about the impact of your actions. You only care about not getting in trouble. 
my son's answer was, oh, mom, I remember wanting to hit people, especially her, according to his sister. <laughs> but I tell you, and you would always understand. So I never needed to do it. And mm-hmm. that incorporates how we're hoping to deal with emotions. When we have more awareness of the emotions that drive our behavior, when the child has more awareness of the emotions that drive their behavior, they don't have to act on them. There's more mindfulness. They're mm-hmm. more aware of it. And then, because, I mean, what is mindfulness? It's noticing what you're feeling mm-hmm. without taking action. Most of the time when we take action, we're actually unconscious. We're not even noticing what we're feeling. We're just lashing out or, you know, raising mm-hmm. our voice or running from something emotionally or opening the refrigerator <laughs> to, to run from something, you know, uh, by eating, you know, stuffing down the feelings. Mm-hmm. Children, when children are shamed for their emotions or punished, they have to stuff those feelings. So they can't be consciously aware. They have to cut off their conscious awareness. So in a way, they can't be mindful. Those, are, those emotions aren't conscious. They can't manage them. Whereas, you know, once emotions are cut off, once we've stuffed them, they're out of our conscious control. The conscious mind isn't controlling them. They're just in the body, right? And they might make, make us anxious. That's where anxiety comes from. Anxiety is, the, is an overactive alarm system. And of, like the amygdala says, oh, there's an emergency. And it could be about things outside us, like I'm scared of dogs or I'm scared of elevators. Or often it's things inside us. I have a vague sense of dread or unease. And what is that? Those are emotions that we have cut off awareness that we're carrying around. I say it's in the emotional backpack, but there's no backpack. It's the body. So when we're carrying around those emotions, we can't control them because they're not conscious. Whereas when we raise children to accept their emotions and to talk about their emotions and to express their emotions safely, then they learn that emotions don't have to be stopped. They may still have big emotions. My daughter still has big emotions. She's 23, but she doesn't act on them. She doesn't hit anybody and she doesn't even lash out and yell at anybody. In fact, she's one of the most, um, she, her equilibrium is astonishing to me. Her, her ability, you know, compared to, and this has been true ever since she was maybe 12, that I've noticed through the teen years and the college years that she's the one who's talking the other kids off the cliff. She's the one who can take a, a role when there's a problem of calming everybody down and helping people work things out. And it's because even though she was born with big emotions, she was the kind of young, she, when she was a toddler, people said things to me like, she's a spicy one. And uh, they would say things like, I pity you. She's a teenager. She was a volatile talk, right? Big emotions. But because she was parented this way, she learned to manage them. So even very strong-willed kids with very big emotions, when they're parented this way, they become more able to manage their emotions. And that means that they're making wiser choices. Because when we make bad choices as adults or as children, it's always out of some unmet needs, frustrated emotions, or unconscious emotions that we really can't control because they're not under our conscious control. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Amen. And that all of course points back to the work of the parent to, to, to maybe reparent ourselves into taking care of our own emotions and things like that. It was interesting. I, I was thinking about how, as you spoke of dealing with like the toddler 
aggression, the siblings and, and going to the sibling who's hurt and comforting the siblings of hurt and the, who, who is hurt that has the dual aspect of like you said, you know, talked about shifting into that nurturing mind. And it really also has the, it's also shifting your brain out of threat response out of that stress response in, in accessing your prefrontal cortex, right? Your, the, your later evolved part of your brain. And so it's actually giving you time to do that too, which is so beautifully in the repair and all of this. And I love this about moral development is caring about the impact of our actions. My only, um, everything I, is a big amen for me. Laura, you, you say it so beautifully. So my only worry is like for the parent who says yes, yes, yes to all of this, but has a partner who doesn't agree and wants to yell and use punishment. Do you have any, you know, brief words of advice for that situation? Well, uh, I think there's nothing brief about it. It would be, would be uh, <laughs> a whole other <sorry>. podcast. <laughs> but, but I would say start always by regulating yourself and reconnecting and acknowledging what your partner is saying. So an example would be, I, I hear you. You're, you're really worried that he hurt his brother. And, you're, and I completely agree. We need to protect both of our children, all of our children. Um, and I am in, in total agreement with you. We need to make sure that you know, that's our priority. We're parents. We have to protect our children. I, my, my question is, what's the best way for him to learn? And so then, 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 you know, obviously, it's a larger discussion with your partner. You're not having one discussion, right? It's the kind of thing that you're going to talk about over time. So much of our learning about how to be parents comes out of the way we were parented. So one question I want to be asking my partner in that instance would be, I wonder what would have happened to you if you had knocked the blocks down on your body? And you might hear, mm. I would, you know, you know, whip with an inch of my life. You might hear, um, oh, they always love my brother better anyway. Or you might hear, oh, my parents just let us, you know, get on with it, right? Um, and my brother was the one who knocked the blocks down on me and I always got hurt. You know, people always have their baggage, right? That's their own stuff from their own childhood. And whatever your partner says in response, it's going to be very useful because when you really unpack that, if your partner was punished as a child, there are a lot of hurt feelings there. Most people cover up those hurt feelings. Most people say, oh, well, I needed that. I was a hellion. And it's a way to justify that the people you loved most in the world, who you depended on, hurt you, your parents. So you justify, you say, I needed to be, I needed a firm hand or I would have been totally out of line. Because the research shows that absolutely every child needs guidance. When we ignore our children's behavior, when we make excuses for it, when we let them do whatever they want, when we let them ride roughshod over other people, including us, that's not good for the child, for sure. And when we crack down with punishment, that doesn't help them. Either. So it's a much longer discussion, but I think starting with your partner with empathy and trying to understand what baggage they're bringing to it and what they really, what would have been ideal for your, speaking to your partner now, what would, what would you like it for your father had done to have done in that, that situation when you were young and you got the belt? or you got whatever, 
What would you have liked your parents to do with that? What would have been ideal for you? Mm, those are great. What words did you hear? Right? What did you need to hear from your parents that would have helped you want to be a better big brother? You know, I think though that's a beginning when you talk with your partner. I would always bring the research in as well. Those are incredible questions. I love those. What What's the best way for him to learn and, and what would have happened to you? Um, Laura, I could... I could pick your brain for this with this incredible wisdom that you have for for hours, but I want to, of course, be mindful of your time. And um, I just want to wrap up by saying thank you for thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your books, uh, Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings is amazing. All of your books are amazing, and um, and the work you've done in the world is is so helpful for for so many. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? My website is ahaparenting.com, A-H-A, like aha moments.com. And, you know, my books are in every bookstore and on Amazon. If they aren't in a bookstore or in a library that you'd like to go to, just request them. Libraries usually tell me they have a long waiting list for the books. (laughs) And, um, you know, you can, I have an online course that takes these ideas uh, deeper. And it's sort of like a boot camp for 12 weeks that I offer three times a year. You, you, I say a boot camp, you're doing it at your own pace in a way, but totally you can take as long as you want to complete it because you have lifetime access. But it helps you take these ideas because, you know, they're not things we usually hear and it's not how most of us were raised. So most of us need a little extra support to be able to put these ideas into effect in our families. Thank you so much, Laura. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Laura, well, her audio wasn't great. Her, she is so wise and just so kind and so compassionate. I love that vital information, how to get your partner on board with your parenting style. And you know, that, that question you need to ask yourself before you discipline, right? Like, what is my goal? What is this end goal? And so if you're wondering and you want support on how to do all of those things, we are going to be talking about all of that in the Mindful Parenting membership and in the Mindful Parenting free training week. And you can join that free training week at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. So I hope you'll join me and really dive in. You know, it's funny, like we say our we have certain things that we say are the most important things to us. And of course, our family is like super high on that priority list. But then when we think about how we spend our time, our energy, our money, like it, it, it's, it, we don't invest often in learning to make these relationships great. And the truth is, is that our, our you know, we, the way our society has taught us, there's a few problems with that. So, um, you can tell, you know, from talking to Dr. Laura, like that these, the sum of our instincts to like punish and blame, like they lead us astray. So it really is powerful, makes such a huge difference in the rest of your life, right? Because these are relationships we are going to have with our kids for the rest of our lives. And do we want to like damage those relationships and make them difficult as we go older? Or do we want to 
start, you know, take wherever we are now, you know, it's never too late to make a change and to change these relationships for the better, to make, to, to create powerful, um, connected relationships that are loving from the inside out, right? To not that we're never going to have conflict, but to know how to deal with those conflicts in ways that aren't shaming and blaming. I had a student take my mindful parenting course uh, a live course, and she was a grandmother, and she was taking the course because she took care of her six year old grandson. And as at the end, as we were talking about some of the changes and the things that were happening, she was happy with how she was relating with her grandson. But the most powerful thing that stood out to me was that this grandmother changed how she related to her adult daughter and they started to heal a relationship that was very rocky for a long time so i really hold that out to you to say that it's never too late if your child is 16 or your child is six or your child is two or whatever we can learn ways of communicating ways of helping ourselves to create habits that are just um, more respectful and and more effective and kinder. So I hope you'll join me. Mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training is the way to dive in. And I am so happy that you are here. Rothman, for you all listening all the way to the end, it fills my heart with joy that you have done that. I'm so thrilled. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm wishing you a peaceful week and I hope to connect soon in that live training and yeah wishing you all all the joy all the attention you know for the joy right sometimes the joy happens and we these things happen we just distract it right so let's let's be there for it let's pay attention for it all right take care my friend namaste When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.